chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table of the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the the tablets of the covenant. Above it, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having been thus made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Lord... As we just simply read this text, there's a lot here that is culturally different and unique to the way you prescribed the nation of Israel to worship thousands of years ago. And so, Lord, we come to a text like this and and we don't want to presume, number one, that we have it down and understand why you had it the way it did, but... Also, Lord, we want you to lead and to teach and to guide us in our understanding of this text. Because, frankly, some of these things are hard and difficult and weighty matters. Sometimes when we come up against cultural issues, Lord, we want to, and we have the tendency to kind of shrink back from them. But we pray, Lord, that you would help us to think through this passage And help us to see how important these things are in light of your son, Jesus Christ. That we might see the richness, the fullness, the grandeur of even a passage like this that speaks of relatively obscure and hard things. We thank you that we can come to you and you hear our prayers and confidently know that you will answer us here this evening. In your name, amen. One of the very first things that we look at here is it tells us in the first verse, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. 
an earthly place of holiness. Holiness is one of the words in the Bible that we want to think that we have an understanding of. That we, maybe when we hear of old-timey preachers, those fire and brimstone, you know, great awakening kind of preachers, we think they preach a message of holiness. Where I am holier than thou. Have you heard that phrase before? That person thinks that they're holier than thou, and they think they're above and superior. We hear a really heavy message about God, and we think, wow, that's, is God, is he really like that? Is he really that weighty? Is he really that, maybe in some people's minds, stern and strict? Holiness is one of those phrases that appears all throughout Scripture. And it really, I guess, behooves us to stop and take a minute because even though what he just told us last Sunday in our sermon at the end of chapter 8 was that the old covenant is now obsolete, but yet he brings the old covenant back up again and in the very beginning of his explanation of these issues and matters of Old Covenant worship, he does indicate that there is an element of holiness that took place and there was a reason why all of those Old Covenant things needed to be the way they did, namely, God's glory and holiness is at stake. In Exodus chapter 19, you you know the story, that Egyptians had enslaved the nation of Israel. Remember after uh, Joshua, pardon me, after Joseph had died and had gone away, another Pharaoh arose to power that didn't know all of the blessings that had come from the hand of Joseph. And so he saw this growing number of Jewish people as a threat, a growing threat. So rather than allow them to continue to coexist and co-mingle, in that Egyptian society, he removed them from the society, gave them their own land, but in doing that, it wasn't a blessing, it was a curse in that he enslaved them all, and that place became a place of slavery. And they lived under the bondage of slavery for nearly 400 years, almost twice as long as America's even been a nation. Right? We think a whole lot of ourselves, but the truth is, history has been a lot longer than the nation of America. In fact, the slavery of the Jewish people was nearly twice as long as we have even existed. But God heard their prayers, God heard their crying out. And one day, He appeared to Moses, brought Moses to the place where He had a message for Pharaoh to let the people go. And in that moment, the very beginning of his message was not let their people go completely, but let us go out and worship the true and living God according to our own standards, according to our own ways, according to our own means, not based upon all of the little paltry things that you're providing for us, but let us really go worship. And worship according to our conscience. Worship according to how God has revealed himself 
to us. And of course, you know Pharaoh's response. (laughs) Who is this God that I should obey him? Oh, really? You have a God, do you? And he's so powerful, is he? That he has left you in slavery for 400 years. And I'm now supposed to bend my knee to this God? I don't think so. And then by the hand of Moses, God performed these miracles. You know the ten plagues that God brought upon the nation of Egypt. Culminating with that one horrific plague. The death of the firstborn. We look back and we call it Passover because it's when the angel of death sent by God came into that land of Egypt and took the breath of life from every single individual that was the firstborn in any family unless they had the sign that God had instructed on their door and it was a sign of blood on the doorposts, on the top and on the bottom of the doorposts. Interestingly enough, it formed the shape of a cross. And in that time, if you had that on your front door, the angel of death would pass over your house and go on to the next house that didn't have blood in such a way. And you know from the story that there was a wailing And a horror that came upon the land because even Pharaoh himself had his firstborn son taken from him. And then and only then did he say, fine, go, go worship, get out. And then you know the story when they did go and they were about to leave after having plundered the Egyptians. Pharaoh, as it were, came to his senses saddled up his horse with his chariot and came down upon them to kill them all. And God intervened by giving them that dry land to pass through in the Red Sea and then swallowing up the Egyptian army behind the nation of Israel. As if that wasn't enough to communicate the holiness, the grandeur, the might and the majesty of God God brought the nation of Israel to a mountain in Arabia called Sinai. And here at this mount, in chapter 19 of the book of Exodus, it says that Moses went up to God and the Lord called him up to this mountain and says, This you shall say to the house of Jacob and to the people of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Therefore, you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, and in doing so, you shall be my treasured possession amongst all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Remember the phrase we looked at last week that I had you underline and circle in your Bibles. I will be your God and you will be my people, right? That's the theme of the covenant of God. And here we see that God in giving even the old covenant says, you will obey me, you will heed my voice because you will be my people and I will be your God amongst all of the nations of the world. You are a privileged people. 
You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. The word holy, now that we've come to it both in terms of the place where God is to be worshipped and the people who are to do the worshipping, means to be set apart, to be separate, to be unique, to be distinct from the rest of the nations around them, the rest of the peoples around them. When we come to God himself and he's called holy, 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 which we'll get to in a few minutes, one of the things that we are reminded of is that God is not like any other God or any other being. He is completely and totally other and unique. Which is why he can declare his place of worship to be holy. He can declare his people whom he has redeemed to be holy. Because he himself is holy. And if he is holy, then whatever he touches or whatever he uses or whatever he ordains or whatever, whatever, is holy because God made it to be holy. He comes down on this mountain and he says to Moses, I am going to come in a thick cloud, and when the people hear me speak, they may also believe you forever. He said, take care that you set limits around this mountain. Don't touch it. Whoever touches the mountain will be put to death. No hand shall touch him. No, he shall either be stoned or shot. Even if it's a beast or a man, they shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds its long blast, then and only then may they come up to the mountain. On the third day when the people awoke, there was thundering and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Now, I don't know about you. I know about me. And there have been probably a handful of times in my life where God did something to the degree where I trembled. We don't think about God often like that, but there are many places in Scripture that when we come to, we see people as they come face to face with the Lord do in fact tremble. For me, I remember when I first became a Christian, still up at that camp that I had gotten saved at, there was this guy who was speaking, and I thought he was kind of kooky at first, because he was, his claim to fame was he was Elvis's drummer. Okay? I guess that's kind of cool. you got to be pretty good if you're going to be the drummer for Elvis, right? I guess. I don't know. I assume so. But that's who he was. This was his claim to fame. And he got up there and he had this drum set. And every single night before he spoke at all, he'd get up there and do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do, right? And he'd do some big old drum solo and he'd lead us in singing songs and there'd be other people playing. But he was the show, right? He was the spectacle, Elvis's drummer guy. Well, one night he got up to speak and he brought it. I mean, he brought the gospel. And it was the very first time where I heard a message of God, and it was not the God that I had in my mind. 
It was a holy God. It was a God who he proclaimed was so utterly holy and so distinctly other, he said if he were to show up in the room right now, honestly, as much fun we're having and as great as this camp is, you would be absolutely on the ground before your face, nearly dead in his presence. And that rocked me. I really felt the weight of that because I had a hard time reconciling that with my best friend, buddy, Jesus. But yet there was truth in what he spoke because I knew my sin was truly, my sin nature was truly offensive before God and that it was such a horrific thing to God that the penalty that I deserved was death and in order to secure my salvation, Christ had to die. Somebody else had to die in my place. So I understood the truth of the gospel. What I didn't understand and was confronted with was God is God. Amen. God is God. And my personal opinion is that is a message that never gets old. That we need to hear, as much as we need to hear the gospel over and over and over again, we need to hear God is God over and over and over and over and over again. So it helps to come to a passage like this and realize that God, when he shows up and he actually comes and manifests himself Everyone is terrified. People are, to use the phrase of another passage we'll look at, undone. People are wiped out. People are absolutely, completely torn apart to their core and don't know what to do with themselves. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. Because the Lord had descended on it. The smoke of it went up like smoke from a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. We sang the song. Mountains tremble. Mountains tumble. Oceans roar. In the presence of God. We sang that. But how many of us actually thought and pictured in our minds the fact that God can and has actually completely just torn mountains down. I don't expect that from God. I'm just going to be honest with you. When I look up and see Mount Lassen in the distance, I go, yeah, cool. It's pretty. I never expect it to be gone because God wiped it out. When I'm driving down from paradise and I see the Sutter Buttes out there standing alone in the middle of our valley, they're still there. They're always there. I never expect them to be gone because the Lord showed up and completely tore those mountains down. But he can. Do you know that? Do you believe that? He has done even more radical things like that in the history of the world. God goes on to give the Ten Commandments and he says that you shall have no other gods before me. The first of the ten. Don't make any carven image. Don't make any likeness. Don't bow down and worship 
anything else. Don't have in your mind a picture of something that you are worshiping. It's one of the reasons I hate this kind of stuff, these trappings. Because I know people have in their mind these kind of things. It's why I don't like Jesus movies. You know, The Passion, Jim Caviezel played Jesus. Because I know there are people who, when they pray to Jesus, have Jim Caviezel in their mind. <laughs> you shall have no... He is so distinct and so holy and so other. In the book of Judges, when God shows up to Samson's parents... And they don't realize it's God at first. They think it's just some super being or they come to call it an angel. And once they realize when they they build an altar and they sacrifice to God because the angel or this being tells them that's what they should do because of the son that they're going to have. And the angel of the Lord, God, steps into that particular fire of worship and ascends into heaven, they both collapse and fall down and are undone because they say, oh no, we have seen God. He's going to kill us. Now, Samson's mom was a little wiser than Samson's dad. (laughs) Oftentimes that's the case, right, guys? She says, no, I think if God had wanted to kill us, he would have already done it. No, he has bigger plans for us. He has something for us to do. In Isaiah, and if you know the holiness of the Lord, you know eventually you have to go to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6. Verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up in the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, did you hear how I read it? That's how we do our devotions, right? We just read it like, yeah, King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, his train filled the temple. And then we go through and we read the rest of this. But think about this. The king had just died. Uzziah was a good king, one of the few good kings. And he had ruled and reigned for more than 50 years. That's like crazy, right? We get a president for maybe eight years. And everybody fights about him. Can you imagine a truly good president who ruled for 50 years? And what would happen upon his death? The nation would mourn. The nation would be in turmoil. The nation would think, what are we going to do? Now, his son was a rascal, but hey, let's put that aside for just a moment. Because they were mourning over the loss of their king. Isaiah was buddies with this guy. And his friend, his king, his monarch... His ruler that God had put upon the throne and God had shown such great favor to give him 50 long years in ruling and reigning there in the land had just passed. And Isaiah, with desperation and a broken heart, goes into the temple of God to worship. He goes to church to worship. And when he walks in the doors of church... Instead of seeing all of the regular fixtures and all the regular things that are there, he opens up and there's God on his throne in the temple. A 
And he is so glorious and so magnificent that the train of his robe completely fills the entire temple with its glory, with his majesty. Do you see the massive contrast? Uzziah, the great and good king of the nation of Israel, who ruled for so long and did so many good things, is suddenly made monumentally insignificant in comparison to the true and living God Almighty who is still enthroned and still ruled and still reigns. The commentary is clear. Isaiah, I am in charge. I am king. I am God. And above him stood the seraphim, each that had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Notice these angels don't even get to see the glory of God that Isaiah gets to see. And their entire lives are spent surrounding the throne of God, saying, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. How do we know this is the thing they do for eternity? They show up again in Revelation chapter 4 doing the exact same thing. They haven't stopped. Now, when I was a kid, I used to think, man, heaven's got to be so boring. I mean, you've seen the cartoons, right? They get up there and they just play a harp on the cloud, right? How hard can that be? That sounds lame. In heaven forever? What are we going to do? I mean, okay, we get a house and we get... Okay. Heaven has nothing to do with a place. Nothing. That is at best secondary. Heaven has to do with the presence of God. These angels continually worship God. He is so awesome. That word, it's unfortunate that it's become just a modern colloquialism for something that we like. Awesome. It should inspire some awe within us. God is so awe-inspiring He is so majestic and glorious in his being that angels can worship him for all eternity. In fact, the book of Ephesians tells us that for all of eternity, we're going to continually be being experiencing the kindness of God towards us. Meaning that the reason heaven lasts forever is because the presence of God towards us, and it's going to take that long for him to show us all of himself. It's never going to stop. We are never going to be bored in heaven because God in his infinitude is going to be continually and for all infinity showing us how great and how grand he is of a being. And we are going to worship him in absolute bliss forever. When these angels say, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory, these are words that we don't have a point of reference for. 
that we read and we can read over them so quickly, but holy, holy, this is the attribute that God is above everything else. The entire earth is full of his glory. And I would say by extension, the entire universe is full of his glory. You can go anywhere in the universe. You can experience and see all of the grandeur of the galaxies that are out there. And they all display the glory of God. They scream the holiness of the Lord. When the angels spoke this, verse 4 tells us the foundations and the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and smoke filled the whole house. What a scene. He comes into worship and suddenly he sees God enthroned. These angels are around the throne proclaiming the praises of God. The foundation of the very temple itself is shaken. And the voice of God calls out. And it fills the entirety of the place with smoke. And then Isaiah's response is right. Woe is me. <laughs> oh no. I am lost. I am undone, some of your translations say. Because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king in contrast to the one who had just died. I have actually seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Now, he's not saying woe is me because I say cuss words. He's saying what Jesus acknowledged when Jesus said, out of the abundance of your heart does what? The mouth speak. He's saying, I am wicked inside and out. He's acknowledging his sin nature. Woe is me. God is holy and I'm a sinner. What am I, I going to do? You see, he is realizing his situation. He's come into the presence of God as a sinner. And the fear of that presence has gripped him. Which is crazy if you think about it. Because Isaiah is a prophet of God. He hears from the Lord. He knows God in ways that we would probably say... A lot of these people who lived back here in the Old Testament didn't know anything about the Lord in that way. And yet he still responds with such terror, with such fear, similar to those people who stood at the base of Mount Sinai when God came down in the smoke and the fire and the lightnings and the rumblings. They were terrified. Isaiah is terrified. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having taken a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. He took a coal from the altar where you would offer the sacrifices and touched his lips, symbolizing the atonement for his sin. In the book of Revelation, 
we see in chapter 4, one sitting on the throne. He who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had an appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Sound familiar? Exactly like Mount Sinai, right? Exactly like Isaiah. Seeing the Lord on his throne and lightnings and thunderings and flashings, these terrifying images. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, were four living creatures full of eyes, inside, out, front, and behind. And they would say, day and night, verse 8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Those who are seated on the thrones, they bow down and worship him and cast their crowns before his throne, saying, verse 11, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist. Beloved, if you want to know the meaning of life, this is it right here. You were created, and by God's will you exist. To worship him. That's the meaning of life. You exist to bring God glory and honor and praise. Is that how you picture God? Is that how you picture your relationship with him? You exist for the purpose of bringing God glory and honor and praise. That's why you breathe. That's why your heart beats. That's why your mind thinks. For the purpose of giving God glory and honor and praise. At the end of the book of Hebrews, which at this point might take us two years to get to, but it's good nonetheless. He says in chapter 12, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Meaning, remember, these struggling Hebrew Christians were given this warning by the preacher here, by the writer, saying, don't go back to Jewish mysticism. Don't go back to Judaism. There's nothing better. And right before this, he has just reiterated everything that we have just talked about. But he says, don't refuse the message that's being preached right here. Because if they didn't escape all those other people who heard this message, they were warned on earth, much less will you escape if you reject him who warns from heaven. Now at that time, God's voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will not shake only the earth, but the heavens also. So this phrase exists. 
yet once more indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order the things that cannot be shaken would remain. Here's the point, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So let us then offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God should inspire awe within you. God should inspire reverence within us. God is a consuming fire. When we come to the very beginning here of Hebrews chapter 9, one of the first things that would come to the original reader's mind when the writer says, even the first covenant had rules and regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, they would have in mind that temp, that tent that God had prepared where his very glory and presence would dwell amongst the people and that would bring reverence and awe in the midst of the people. And over and over and over as we see them wandering in the wilderness, they do complain, but they also have a healthy fear and understanding and reverence for God. Beloved, I think as we come to this section here, and this is as far as we're going to get, what we want to have in mind is all of these truths of God. They are good and healthy truths because if God is absolutely this incredible and awesome and vast and yet he has looked down from his throne and he like Isaiah has taken coals from the tongs of the altar and have brought it to your lips and have cleansed you of your sin and all of your unrighteousness then beloved you have received the greatest and most glorious blessing any creature could ever experience and that's his approval his love his grace, his acceptance. He says, you are mine, I will be your God. When a holy God, when the holy God does that, beloved, there is absolutely nothing in this new covenant that can ever separate us from that kind of love, from that kind of acceptance, that kind of grace, and that kind of mercy. Because he has taken me who does not in any way deserve to be in his presence and has seen fit to show me love and grace and has seen fit to show loving kindness towards me for all eternity by saying, you are no longer your own person. You are no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. You are no longer going to go your own way, live your own life, follow your own course, be the pilot of your own ship. No, you are mine. And I have brought you into my kingdom. I have adopted you into my family. I have taken from the altar and have atoned for your sins so that I would be your God and you would be my person. That is great. That is amazing, radical love. And beloved, it's one of the things that we're going to find as we look at next week, all of the rules and regulations within that worship that separates us so much from these old covenant believers. 
There were so many things that separated them from that acceptance of God that we experience so regularly and so routinely, frankly, we take it for granted, which is why a sermon like this to bring us back to that foundational perspective of who God is is so helpful. It reminds us of who he is and who we are so that we can all the more rejoice and worship him with love, admiration, and praise that's due his name. Amen. Lord, we pray that as we come to sing your praises and partake of your table that you've given to us here this evening, Lord, that we would be reminded of both your holiness, your awesomeness, your grandeur, your majesty, and how much that separates us as creatures, dependent beings from you. So that when we do realize that you have forgiven us of our sins and brought us into your family, that we might marvel at that terrific, fantastic, glorious grace. Because there is nothing else like it and there is no greater need any person has than to be accepted by you that we might worship you for now and for eternity, Lord. Thank you. In your son's name we pray.